Good afternoon, everyone. Hope you're having a pleasant weekend and holiday. I had read and studied the Bible as I was growing up from about the age of eight, but there was much of it that I did not understand. Actually, most of it I didn't understand. And many of the things that I had been taught about the Bible's doctrines were in fact false. One of the things that I had not given a great deal of thought to was the Sabbath. Like others from a Protestant background, I went to church on Sunday as a matter of habit without giving much thought to why Sunday was being kept rather than some other day of the week. When I was not in church on Sundays, I was doing other things, mainly either working at a job, which I did for several years on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings when I was in high school and college, or playing football with friends, or sometimes watching television or doing other things for entertainment and recreation. The idea that working at a secular job or other things I was doing might be under some circumstances breaking the Sabbath, if it ever occurred to me at all, which it probably didn't, made no meaningful impression on my mind. It was not until I came into contact with the ministry of Herbert W. Armstrong and what was then called the Radio Church of God that I began to think about the Sabbath seriously. As I listened and read literature regarding the Sabbath question, and studied the relevant scriptures, I became convinced that God commanded the Sabbath to be kept on the seventh day of the week, what is commonly called Saturday in our country, or actually Friday evening at sunset to Saturday evening at sunset. Eventually, I became convinced that Herbert Armstrong's teachings were correct concerning a number of other biblical doctrines, and I became a member of the church of which he was the pastor general, later to be called the Worldwide Church of God. Not everything Herbert Armstrong taught was correct, but despite the relatively small number of errors that he taught, Mr. Armstrong taught a great many truths, including truths which were directly contrary to many of the doctrines of popular Christianity. Anyone influenced by the truths Mr. Armstrong taught might have profited from them mightily. The Church of God had been keeping the Passover from the time of the original apostles, and at times throughout the centuries, the Church had kept some or all of the annual holy days. One example of that is that in 1904, a man named G.C. Rupert entered the ministry of the Church of God, having been a Seventh-day Adventist minister, but having left the Seventh-day Adventist in 1902 over doctrinal disagreements. Mr. Rupert had come to believe that not only the weekly Sabbath, but the annual Sabbaths also were binding on the New Testament church. At that time, a branch of the Church of God with headquarters in Stanbury, Missouri, was publishing a journal called The Bible Advocate. In 1913, the editor of The Bible Advocate published a series of articles written by G.C. Rupert declaring that the annual Sabbaths ought to be kept by the Church of God. 
Despite having published these articles, most associated with the Stanbury Church rejected the idea of keeping the annual Sabbaths, but a number of congregations that Mr. Rupert had established in South America accepted the keeping of the annual Holy Days. Because of differences with the leaders of Stanbury Church, Mr. Rupert began working as an, quote, independent Church of God minister and began publishing his own magazine called The Remnant of Israel, which he continued to publish until his death in 1922. When Herbert Armstrong came into contact with the Church of God Remnant, headquartered in Stanbury, Missouri in 1926, the annual Holy Days were not generally being kept by that church. However, Mr. Armstrong determined from his study of the scriptures that the annual Holy Days and festivals ought to be kept. It was an important truth that opened up a far more in-depth understanding of God's plan for mankind. Because the keeping of the annual festivals and holy days are an, an important key to understanding God's plan and how it is being accomplished, Mr. Armstrong came to understand in a general sense through the keeping of those festivals what the plan is and in, in a general sense how is it, it is being worked out. In, a, in, in 1933, a split occurred in the church headquartered at Stanbury, and Mr. Armstrong had associated himself with the remnant of the church called the Church of God Seventh Day with its headquarters in Salem, West Virginia. The Salem group was led by Andrew Duggar, who had previously led the Stanbury organization until the split occurred. However, in 1938, Mr. Armstrong himself was forced to separate from the Salem organization, which asked him to turn in his ministerial credentials with that church because in part of his advocacy of keeping the annual festivals and holy days. Yet Mr. Armstrong continued to proclaim the gospel on the radio, in print, and in personal appearances until his death in 1986. Through his influence, millions of people were eventually exposed to the truth about the annual Sabbaths and how they fit in with God's plan. And tens of thousands actually began to practice keeping the annual festivals and holy days outlined in the Bible as well as the weekly Sabbath. Now, why are we here today instead of somewhere else? Mr. Armstrong often asked that question on various occasions, especially holy days, why are we here? And it's still a good question. Why are we here today? And why are we not in somewhere else, doing something else? God does things for a purpose, and God has set aside not only the weekly Sabbath, but also the annual Sabbaths in part to teach us the sequence of steps in his plan of salvation for mankind. 
And as you know, today is the day of Pentecost. The third annual festival of seven annual festivals of God. In this sermon, I want to discuss some of the significance of the Feast of Pentecost as it relates to God's plan of salvation. In Deuteronomy, or excuse me, in Leviticus 23, Leviticus 23, beginning with verse 9, and Leviticus 23 is a chapter which outlines all of these seven annual festivals, as well as the Sabbath, or the weekly Sabbath. And in verse 9, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma. And its drink offering shall be of wine one-fourth of a hen. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. In Palestine, the promised land that God gave as an inheritance to ancient Israel, the early harvest in the year was the grain harvest, primarily of barley and wheat. A sheaf or Hebrew omer, about two quarts equivalent in our measures today, about a, two quarts of barley, which was the first grain to ripen of the spring harvest, was to be cut and offered as a wave offering on the day after the Sabbath, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's what we were just reading about. It was the wave offering of grain, a sheaf of grain, to be cut and offered as a wave offering on the day after the Sabbath during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The sheaf or omer of grain was cut at the close of the Sabbath and offered in the temple on the following morning, which was the first day of the week. The omer of grain offered on that day was the very first of the first fruits of the annual harvest. The first of the first fruits. From a spiritual standpoint, the omer of grain offered as a wave offering during the Feast of Unleavened Bread was symbolic. It was symbolic of Jesus Christ the first fruits of God, the first of the first fruits of God. As we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Now notice here it tells us that as in Adam all die, all human beings are destined to die, but all are also destined to be resurrected. But each in his own order. And the first one to be resurrected from the dead to eternal life was Jesus Christ. Now, others had been resurrected over the centuries on, on rare occasions by miracles of God. But those people were only resurrected to, to uh, physical life. And they later died to stay dead. And they're still dead today. The only one, the only human being up to this point who has died and then been resurrected to not to physical, temporary life, but to eternal life is Jesus Christ. And he is the very first of the first fruits to be resurrected from the dead and given eternal life in the kingdom of God. Jesus was resurrected at the close of the weekly Sabbath, not on Sunday morning as is often mistakenly believed, but he was resurrected at the close of the weekly Sabbath exactly three days and three nights after his crucifixion, which occurred right at uh, or his death by crucifixion, which occurred uh, shortly before sundown, three days earlier, and then he was buried right at sunset. So he was in the grave for three days and three nights. And then he was resurrected at sunset as the Sabbath ended and the first day of the week began. And this occurred during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. About the time that the priests were going out into the field to cut the wave offering. On the morning after his resurrection, at about the time when the wave offering of first fruits was presented at the temple, which is very early in the morning, Christ ascended to heaven to be formally accepted by the Father. Mary Magdalene, one of Jesus' disciples, had come on the early morning of the first day of the week after Jesus' crucifixion when she got there, Jesus had already been resurrected, having, as we said, been resurrected on the evening prior to that. So when she got there, Jesus had already been resurrected and the tomb was empty. As we read in John 20 and verse 11, but Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. She didn't recognize him for some reason. 
Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will uh, take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father and to my God and your God. When the wave sheaf was waved be, uh, heaved up to God, waved before God on the morning of the first day of the week during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that was symbolic of Jesus ascending to the Father to be to be accepted in a, in a formal sense as the sacrifice for all the sins of mankind. Matthew fills in some details about what happened next in Matthew 28, beginning, well, Matthew 28, verse 9. It says, as they went to tell his disciples, women were going to tell Jesus' disciples as he had instructed Mary to do, and the other Mary was in the vicinity. But <clears throat> she went to tell the disciples. They went to tell them. And then Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Now notice at first, Jesus told Mary not to cling to him, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Then a short time later, he met them on the way and they held him by the feet and worshipped him. And obviously between that, in that interval of time, Jesus had ascended to the father and been received. And he was accepted of the Father as the first of the first fruits. In Leviticus 23, beginning with verse 15, we read, You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Seven Sabbaths, of course, would be seven days, which is 49 days. Then it says in verse 16, count 50 days to the day after the Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah, they shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. Now they are the first fruits to the Lord. Notice here that there were to be two loaves of bread, so to speak, and these loaves were to be baked with leaven. Now normally, when meal offerings or offerings of grain or cakes or loaves made with 
flour were offered at the temple, they were to be unleavened. But here these loaves were leavened. These two loaves were offered on the on the fiftieth uh, day after the offering of the wave sheaf. And it says they are the first fruits to the Lord. These two loaves were, were first fruits. You shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull, two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings and offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. And they shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. So this day was to be an annual Sabbath, a holy convocation with no customary work to be done. That is no secular work that was to be done on that day. So beginning with the day of the wave offering of first fruits from the day after, which is translated from the Hebrew Mimakaroth, which is usually translated in the King James Version on the morrow, on the morrow after the Sabbath. And that term, that Hebrew term, Mimakaroth, always has the meaning of including the morrow in the count. Seven Sabbaths were to be completed. And the 50th day, the day following the seventh Sabbath, was to be observed as the Feast of Pentecost. The word Pentecost is really uh, uh, simply a transliteration of the Greek word Pentecostos, which means 50th. In the Old Testament, the Feast of Pentecost is generally referred to as the Feast of Weeks or of First Fruits. So you could use any of those terms as a description of this day, as those are the terms used in the Bible itself to designate this festival, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of First Fruits. On the day of Pentecost, under the Levitical system, as we read, two leavened loaves were to be offered as a wave offering of first fruits, along with other sacrifices that were offered. The Omer offered 50 days earlier was without leaven, and as we saw, it symbolized Jesus Christ, and the fact that it was offered without leaven symbolized the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. As we read in Hebrews 4 and verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus Christ was a sinless, a perfect sacrifice. But the leavened wave loaves offered on the day of Pentecost represented the people of God under the old and new covenants. That's why there were two loaves representing the old and new covenant eras leading up to the time of the resurrection. The eras in this age before the resurrection of the old and new covenants and the fact that these were were leavened loaves illustrates that we are not without sin. We are striving for perfection, but none of us is yet perfect. In 1 John 1 and verse 6, 1 John 1 and verse 6, John wrote, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So we are cleansed from sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is, we are forgiven of our sins and they're washed away from the sight of God, so to speak. They're blotted out before God. But he goes on to write in verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now we ought to be striving as diligently as humanly possible to live without sin, to put sin out of our lives. But if we say that we have fully accomplished that and we are perfect, in doing that, we would be lying because none of us has done that perfectly. But what we must do is confess our sins and our sinfulness and go to God and ask forgiveness on a daily basis and God will cleanse us from that unrighteousness. And he will help us to overcome and become more and more like Christ as we grow and develop spiritually. On the 50th day following Christ's resurrection in 31 AD on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the New Covenant Church in a special way. As we read in Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
almost 15 centuries prior to that event in 31 AD. God had appeared to Israel on what was very likely the day of Pentecost, although the Bible does not specifically say it was on the day of Pentecost, but it was at that season and by the Jews to have a tradition, I believe that it was the day of Pentecost, and actually that's very likely correct. But God, on the day that he appeared to Israel, likely on the day of Pentecost, and gave them his law, he entered into a covenant relationship with them, as we read in Exodus 19, beginning with verse 1. Exodus 19 and verse 1, in the third month, after the children of Israel had come, gone out of the land of Egypt. On the same day they come, came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim and come into the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. This was Mount Sinai. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will, in, uh, will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord through the covenant. God sought to separate Israel to himself as a special people, a kind of first fruits, a model nation through whom he eventually would reach the rest of mankind. As we read in Jeremiah 2, chapter 2 and verse 1 of Jeremiah, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember you the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal when you went after me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holiness to the Lord, the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him will offend. Disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. So notice that God made a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, gave them his law. They said that they would keep his words faithfully they entered into that covenant relationship with god and they were first fruits as it says here in jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 3 israel was holiness to the lord the first fruits of his increase So it's not just the new covenant church, if you want to put it in those terms.
that of, of which the first fruits consist, although in a sense those who are actually counted the first fruits, as we will see, were were uh, in a sense under the new covenant. But it includes many people who lived and died before the coming of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion and resurrection. Even today, the Jews believe that they have a, that is, observant Jews, believe that they have a special standing before God because they received the law and became the covenant nation of God. The problem is, although Israel received the law through which they were to be sanctified, they did not keep it. They said they would keep it, but most of them did not. As we read in Ezekiel chapter 20, beginning with verse 11, Ezekiel 20 and verse 11, And I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Yet the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes. They despised my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they greatly defiled my Sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my fury on them in the wilderness to consume them, but I acted for my name's sake that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles in whose sight I had brought them out. So I also raised my hand in an oath to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. Because they despised my Sabbaths and did not walk in my statutes, but profane my Sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols. Nevertheless, my eyes spared them from destruction. I did not make an end of them in the wilderness. But I said to their children in the wilderness, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor observe their judgments, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. Hallow my Sabbaths, and they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Notwithstanding, the children rebelled against me, and they did not walk in my statutes, and were not careful to observe my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. But they profaned my Sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my fury upon them and fulfill my anger against them in the wilderness." Nevertheless, I withdrew my hand and acted for my name's sake, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the Gentiles in whose sight I had brought them out. I also raised my hand in an oath to those in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the Gentiles and disperse them throughout the countries, because they had not executed my judgments, but had despised my statutes, profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were fixed on their father's idols." End quote. Now, Jesus, much later, said to the Jewish leaders of his day the following, which we find in John chapter 5, beginning with verse 46. 
he was speaking to the religious leaders of the Jews who were also actually the political leaders, although they were under the authority of the Roman government, but the Jewish council, Sanhedrin served as the not only the leading religious body among the Jews at that time, but also the political authority under Roman, uh, the Roman uh, oversight. And he said to the leaders, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will, you, how will you believe my words? Now, the ironic thing is that they claimed to base the religion on Moses' writings, but much of their, of their body of tradition and practice was in fact contrary to Moses' teachings, to, to what Moses had written, contrary to the laws of God as Mr. Kendall mentioned in his uh, sermonette, that, that, that much of their religion was corrupt in numerous ways. And they did not actually believe Moses because had they actually believed him, then they would have been following God's laws instead of breaking them. In Acts 7, we read a testimony by Stephen, who is being persecuted as a follower of Jesus Christ, and he had been brought before the council to be tried, and he said to them, he said to the Jewish leaders, the, the Supreme Council, the Sanhedrin, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. God knew when he gave Israel the law and entered into the covenant relationship with them that although they said they would obey, he knew that they did not have the heart to obey. In Deuteronomy 5 verse 29, Deuteronomy 5, verse 29, he said, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. They were carnally minded. And the carnal mind, as we read in Romans 8, is contrary to God and hostile to God and his law. The law God gave to them to live by was written on tablets of stone and on parchment, but it was not written in the hearts and minds of the people. 
they were circumcised of flesh, but their hearts were uncircumcised. Spiritual conversion was not required as a condition for entering into the Old Covenant. And most of the people were never converted. Some were, but the vast majority of the people of Israel down through history have never been converted. Only a small portion, relatively speaking, have been. But that's not because God didn't give them an opportunity to be converted. God told them, even at that time, what he wanted in Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. God told them to become circumcised, not only of flesh, but to be circumcised in their hearts. Repent, in other words. But most of them refused God's pleadings. Most of them never took God's law seriously. They never strove to diligently to obey God, and they were never converted. Yet the prophets foretold of a day in the future when Israel would be given the Spirit of God wholesale. Not just one here and there, not just a handful, relatively speaking, but the whole people. And when that is to be fulfilled, then the whole nation will obey God. We read about it in Ezekiel chapter 11, beginning with verse 19. Ezekiel 11 and verse 19, Then I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and will give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts follow the, the, the desire for their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. And then in Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 36, beginning with verse 24, this is a prophecy for the future after the end-time captivity of Israel. Verse 24, I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean, and I will cleanse you from your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your, of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. 
Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. End quote. So God will make a new covenant with Israel and Judah, and through the power of his spirit, the law will be written not just on stone and parchment, but on the hearts of the people, and they will obey it. We read about it also in Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning with verse 31, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with them or with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they... All shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. End quote. Those who have undergone genuine repentance and baptism have been privileged to have already entered into that new covenant as the first fruits of God's Spirit in this age. Full sanctification requires receiving and obeying God's Word along with receiving His sanctifying and empowering Spirit. As we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13, we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Notice that we are chosen for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. That's what sanctifies us. That's what makes us holy. That's what makes us among the, the first fruits. Through willingly receiving God's word, believing it, repenting, and usually being baptized with the laying on of hands, we receive the Holy Spirit. There are a few instances where people received the Holy Spirit prior to baptism in the, in the New Testament. Others in the uh, year of the Old Te Testament, we don't know all the circumstances under which they received the Holy Spirit, but many of them did and uh, will be in the first resurrection, even some of the patriarchs before, before the, the covenant that God made with Israel. But uh, normally we have the, we, we, we all have to receive the word of God, believe it, repent, 
And normally, we would have to be baptized and have the laying on of hands to receive the Holy Spirit, though there may be some exceptions. But when that occurs, we enter into the new covenant. We are numbered among the first fruits of God, having entered into that covenant relationship with God. As we read in James 1 and verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of God, of the word of truth. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Or it could be of his creation, his spiritual creation. We are a kind of first fruits, pictured and represented by the first fruit offerings, particularly the loaves offered on the Feast of Pentecost under the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant. Having entered into that covenant, then we must walk in the Spirit if we are to continue in God's favor. As we read in Romans 8 and verse 1, Romans 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And that goes on in verse 5 of Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Apart from the Spirit of God working in us, we cannot be truly subject to God's laws. We may make an attempt to obey the laws in some respect, but we cannot be truly subject to, to the laws of God apart from the Holy Spirit working in us. And we have to be spiritually minded. That is, we have to have our minds focused on the things of the Spirit, not just on the things of the flesh. As Paul goes on to say, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit, which dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. These remain the sons of God if you are led by God's Spirit. After you have received the Spirit, if you are spiritually minded, continue to be led by the Spirit of God. 
and not just your own carnal impulses, then you remain a son of God in the sense of being a part of his spiritual family. In Romans 8, verse 23, it says, Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Notice we in this age have the first fruits of the Spirit. And it's very important to understand the significance of this terminology. First fruits. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption or the sonship, as it could be translated, the redemption of our body. Now we're told in Galatians chapter 5, beginning with verse 16, Galatians 5 and verse 16, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. We have a war going on between our ears, so to speak, with our flesh pulling one way and the Spirit of God pulling the other, if we have God's Spirit. But we have to choose to be led by God's Spirit, not by our fleshly lusts. It goes on in verse 18 to say, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, and he's speaking of under the law in the sense of under the old covenant with its, with its uh, condemnation because remember the people of Israel, most of them under the law of the old covenant were fleshly and they were condemned. And we are condemned along with them until we're forgiven of our sins through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It says now the works of the, that doesn't mean you're not under the law in the sense of obliged to obey the commandments. Uh, really, this is the very point Paul is making, that we are obliged to keep the commandments, being led by God's Spirit. He goes on to say, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication. What does the law say? It says, Don't commit adultery. Don't commit these other sins that are mentioned here. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. In Revelation chapter 14, We read of a group of individuals who will be among the first fruits. 
They are the 144,000 of the tribes of Israel who will be sealed with the Holy Spirit just prior to the day-long or the year-long day of the Lord, quote-unquote, a year on the year for a day principle, the day of the Lord in, uh, in a sense, and there are actually several ways in which this term day of the Lord is used, but one sense has to do with the final year leading up to the return of Jesus Christ. And the 144,000 referred to in Revelation chapter 14 will be sealed with the Holy Spirit just prior to that year-long day of the Lord during the tribulation. And that year-long day of the Lord will end this age at the coming of, of Christ. And these 144,000 are not only among the first fruits of this era, they are the first fruits of the billions that will ultimately be redeemed and given the Holy Spirit throughout the extended day of the Lord that will continue to the time of the introduction of the new heavens and the new earth, spoken of in Second Peter chapter 3 and Revelation 21. As I said, the day of the Lord has, is used in several different senses in the Bible. And in, in one sense, the day of the Lord will continue on through the millennium and on past the millennium to the time of the new heavens and the new earth spoken of in Second Peter 3 and Revelation 21. All who are converted receiving and retaining God's Holy Spirit prior to Christ's second coming are among the first fruits of this age. And as I said, that includes those who were faithful prior to Christ's first coming. And all of those will be in the first resurrection. And, and these are discussed in a general sense in, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39, where it refers to various uh, faithful people during the old covenant era and before during the patriarchal age and so forth. It says in verse 39 of Hebrews 11, all these having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. In other words, they will be perfected, that is resurrected into the very likeness of God as spirit beings in the image of Jesus Christ at the same time that we will be, providing we are in that resurrection. At the second coming of Christ, the first fruits of this age will come up in what is termed in the Bible the first resurrection. We read in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22, 
1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Now, as we saw earlier in the symbolism associated with the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, the wave sheaf offered on the Sabbath or on the first day after the Sabbath during the Feast of Unleavened Bread represented the, the first of the first fruits, Jesus Christ. And then there was a, a period of time during which the harvest continued. First, the, the, har the barley harvest, which began immediately after the offering of the wave sheaf on the first day of the week after the Sabbath during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then was the wheat harvest. And the, the early grains were harvested. And that harvest concluded around the time of Pentecost. And all of that was considered the harvest of first fruits because it was the the, the first fruits of the uh, of the products of the ground to be harvested during the year and in first Thessalonians 4 First Thessalonians 4 and verse 14, it says, If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And in Revelation 20, beginning with verse 4, Revelation 20 and verse 4, it says, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. But then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. And in that resurrection will be only a relative handful of the vast billions of mankind who have lived and died since the time of Adam. They, however, will be the pioneers, the trailblazers for vast multitudes to follow in God's kingdom. That's why those converted and faithful in this age are called first fruits. Just like the first few bushels of grain to be harvested are followed by many more. Just like the first harvest of grain in Israel was followed by other harvests of produce into the fall. 
the first fruits of God will be followed by a much greater number who will during the millennium and on through the great white throne judgment accept the truth, yield to it, receive the spirit of God and ultimately be born into the family or the kingdom of God. The Feast of Pentecost teaches us that salvation is not limited to this age, that those few being saved now will be followed by a much greater ingathering in terms of numbers that will come in a future age. And we, as first fruits, will be privileged to help Jesus Christ prepare and reap that great harvest of souls to come. 